While pondering a theme for this conference assignment, I had occasion to conduct some business over the telephone with a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. In that conversation, I asked, Would you help me select a suitable subject for my conference assignment? He said yes in a very reassuring voice. And then he said, Carlos, pray. I therefore share with you the results of many prayers, and I do so prayerfully and obediently and very humbly. On November the 1st, 1857, Elder George A. Smith delivered a memorable discourse which included this old Chinese fable. A man traveling through the country came to a large city, very rich and splendid. He looked at it and said to his guide, This must be a very righteous people, for I can only see but one little devil in this great city. The guide replied, You do not understand, sir. This city is so perfectly given up to wickedness that it requires but one devil to keep them all in subjection. (laughs) Traveling on a little further, he came to a rugged path and saw an old man trying to get up the hillside, surrounded by seven great big coarse-looking devils. I said the traveler, this must be a tremendously wicked old man. See how many devils there are around him. This, replied the guide, is the only righteous man in the country, and there are seven of the biggest devils trying to turn him out of his path, and they all cannot do it. After relating the fable, Elder Smith added that the devil has the world so perfectly at his disposal that it requires few devils to keep it in subjection. And the whole legion of devils has nothing to do but look after the Mormons and stir up the hearts of the children of men to destroy them, to put them out of existence. The evil one has attempted on many occasions, in all dispensations, to put out of existence, if you will, many of God's children. Sometimes he himself has assumed the deluder's role. Other times he has worked through those who have stepped to his side of the line. For instance, in the Book of Mormon, we read of three antichrists. Each was deceived, each preached against those who believed in Christ, and each sought openly to destroy the Church of God. Their patterns of deceit were similar. They taught false doctrines, spread lies, referred to prophecies as foolish traditions, accused Church leaders of perverting the right way of God, and they baited the people by referring to their faith as a foolish and vain hope. When we read about the Antichrists of former days, we marvel at how perverted their thinking became, and we marvel at how successful they were in deceiving men and women. We also wonder why some of the people were so gullible, so easily misled. And with all this marveling and wondering, we tend to niche the Antichrists in some corner of ancient history and go about our unguarded ways. This is dangerous. It could result in loss of faith, and in a spiritual sense, it could put us out of existence. Since the spring of 1820, Lucifer has led a relentless attack against the Latter-day Saints and their leaders. A parade of antichrists, anti-Mormons, and apostate groups have appeared on the scene. Many are still among us and have released new floods of lies and false accusations. These faith killers and testimony thieves— 
used personal contacts and printed word, electronic media, and other means of communication to sow doubts and to disturb the peace of true believers. Two months ago, we received a tender letter from a bishop. He informed us that he had been involved in an excommunication of a recent convert. The new convert had fallen under the influence of a very dedicated apostate who was successful in destroying the convert's testimony. It seems that the apostate cited changes made in church publications over the years to discredit Joseph Smith and subsequent prophets. The approach used by the apostate is common among those who are more interested in shadows than light. Their logic, if followed, would have them burning the New Testament because Luke's account of the gospel is not exactly like Matthew's, or because the book of Acts reports two differing versions of Paul's vision on the road to Damascus. Belief in modern prophets and continuous revelation is absent in the lives of many apostates. They would pin their hopes for salvation upon things other than those related to living prophets and living faith. The questions follow. How do we respond to such malicious and evil designs? Do we strike back? Allow me to suggest a course of action, one which is in harmony with the teachings of the Savior, and one which, if followed, will show us the way through the counsel of prophets past and present. Number one, avoid those who would tear down your faith. Faith killers are to be shunned. The seeds which they plant in the hearts and minds of men grow like cancer and eat away the spirit. True messengers of God are builders, not destroyers. We send our missionaries into the world to teach and to assist people in receiving truth, line upon line, until the fullness of the gospel is received. As one new convert testified, my previous church provided me the chapter on mortality. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints added two more chapters pertaining to pre-mortal and post-mortal lives. Number two, keep the commandments. President Brigham Young promised, all we have to do is to go onward and upward and keep the commandments of our Father and God, and he will confound our enemies. If we obey holy laws, we will take upon ourselves the whole armor of God, and we will be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Moreover, obedience assures us of the guidance and protection of the Holy Spirit. Three, follow the living prophets, as we have just been admonished. One church leader taught, Always keep your eye on the president of the church, and if he ever tells you to do anything and it is wrong and you do it, the Lord will bless you for it. But you don't need to worry. The Lord will never let his mouthpiece lead the people astray. We walk in uncharted minefields and place our souls in jeopardy when we receive the teachings of anyone except he that is ordained of God. For do not contend or debate over points of doctrine. The Master warned that the spirit of contention is not of me but is of the devil. We are inconsistent if we resort to satanic tactics in attempting to achieve righteous ends. Such inconsistency results only in frustration, loss of the spirit, and ultimate defeat. Remember, we claim the privilege of worshiping Almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow all men the same privilege. 5. Search the scriptures. 
Few of us would go astray or lose our way if we regarded the scriptures as our personal guide or compass. The iron rod is the word of God, and if held to, we will not fall. Number six, do not be swayed or diverted from the mission of the church. There are those who would draw you off course and cause you to waste time and energies. Satan used a diversion ploy when he tempted Christ in the wilderness. His decisive response, get thee hence, Satan, is proper example for all of us. Seven, pray for your enemies. Christ said to the Nephites, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. While on the cross he pled, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There are many who are kept from the truth, not because they don't want it, but because they know not where to find it. Eight, practice pure religion. Involve yourselves in Christian service. Succor the poor. Visit the fatherless and widows. And be charitable to all, whether in or out of the church. Nine, remember that there may be many questions for which we have no answers and that some things have to be accepted simply on faith. An angel of the Lord asked Adam, Why dost thou offer sacrifices unto the Lord? He answered, I know not, save the Lord commanded me. There may be times when we are called upon to climb Mount Moriah's and to sacrifice our Isaacs without a full and prior explanation. Faith is the first principle of the gospel. It is a principle of progress. I suspect that there are few who know better the reality of Satan and his henchmen than does the full-time missionary. For the missionary is exposed to the fiery darts of the adversary which come whistling overhead as he or she labors in the front lines in our war against sin. However, I promise all missionaries and all members that if the nine actions mentioned are followed consistently, victory will be yours and faith and testimony will be preserved. At the same time, I assure you that opposition to our cause testifies of its divinity. Would satanic powers combine against us if we were not posing a threat to such powers? I assure you that opposition, if met and overcome, has a refining influence upon our lives. A verse in one of our hymns reads, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The Savior learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Joseph Smith's oppositions gave him experience and worked for his good. I assure you that the waters in which we are wont to swim are but little puddles when compared with the deep rivers of opposition in which the prophet Joseph and others swam. I assure you that our cause is just and it will succeed, regardless of the opposition exerted against us. Earlier saints were bolstered by these words, as well might man stretch forth his puny arm to stop the Missouri River in its decreed course or to turn it upstream as to hinder the Almighty from pouring down knowledge from heaven upon the heads of the Latter-day Saints. President Young said, Every time you kick Mormonism, you kick it upstairs. You never kick it downstairs. The Lord Almighty so orders it. 
I implore with all my heart of those who are walking on the fringes of our faith to seek the safety of the center. This can be done best by counseling with your leaders, remaining within the fellowshipping circle of the saints, and receiving nourishment from the, from the good word of God. Do not permit faithless people to turn you out of the right way or to put you out of existence. And I pray for those who deal in the highest form of larceny, that of stripping people of their precious testimonies. Such action, if continued, will lead only to the futility and emptiness of the dream of a night vision. God help us all in our war against sin. Though our numbers may be few and our dominions small, may we go forward armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It was Friday morning, June 28, 1844, and already the summer sun was hot in Illinois. Since 8 o'clock that morning, Dr. Willard Richards, Samuel H. Smith, and nine others had plodded along the dusty road between Carthage and Nauvoo, Illinois. Moving along the road with the solemn procession were two wagons heaped with bushes to protect their cargo from the blistering heat of the sun. Laid out on the wagons were the lifeless bodies of Joseph Smith, age 38, over six feet tall, and Hiram, his brother, age 44, and even larger in stature than Joseph. Wearily, Dr. Richards and Samuel Smith, brother to the two murdered men, pressed toward Nauvoo and talked of the events just the night before, during which Joseph and Hiram were gunned down by an armed mob with painted faces. The two victims, along with Dr. Richards and John Taylor, were lodged in Carthage jail, supposedly for their protection, when the mob numbering from 150 to 200 marauders stormed the jail and shot to death their intended victims. Word of the deaths had already reached Nauvoo, headquarters city for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As the wagons and their foot-weary guardians entered the city, several thousand citizens greeted the procession with the most solemn lamentations and mourning. The bloodied bodies were tenderly removed from the wagons at the Nauvoo mansion and were carefully washed from head to foot. The various wounds were filled with cotton soaked in camphor, and death masks were impressed on each face. Fine, plain clothing was then placed on each body. When these preparations were completed, the bodies were viewed that night by the bereaved widows and children of the two men, along with many of their closest associates. Then on Saturday, June 29th, more than 10,000 mourning saints viewed the remains of their beloved prophet Joseph and his brother, the patriarch Hiram. The bodies were then secretly and lovingly buried. Some of the enemies of Joseph Smith exulted in their infamous deeds, and many proclaimed that the church which he had restored and for which he had given his life would die with him. But, to the surprise of its enemies, the church did not die, nor did the work of Joseph Smith cease with his mortal death. What has transpired in a century and a half bears eloquent testimony to the eternal nature of the work of this singularly remarkable man, Joseph Smith. The church which he restored has had dramatic growth in many parts of the earth,
It has produced an unequaled missionary system and an unmatched welfare program. Its governing systems gives priesthood, power, and authority from God to all worthy male members, at the same time recognizing the exalted status of women as being equal to men. The Church has an inspired law of health and temporal well-being far ahead of its time. By revelation from God, the Church also possesses those keys, saving principles, and ordinances which will bring eternal exaltation to mankind, living and dead. Because of these and other reasons, millions of people have become members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But to each true believer there must ultimately come and finally come a conviction that Joseph Smith was a revealer of truth, a prophet of God. Each must be convinced that God the Father and his son Jesus Christ did appear to Joseph Smith and did commission him to reestablish the Church of Christ upon the face of the earth. I have such a conviction. And it is my humble desire to share with you some of the things which verify my testimony of Joseph Smith and his work. My own witness is a spiritual one more than a scientific or historical one. I doubt that the gospel of Jesus Christ as restored to the earth through the prophet Joseph Smith and as taught by all the prophets who have succeeded him will ever be completely provable by the scientific method alone. It must be accepted by faith and understood by the gift and power of God. For instance, one of the truths revealed by Joseph Smith on February 27, 1833, taught of the harmful effects of tea, coffee, tobacco, and alcoholic beverages. Such teachings today can be proven scientifically. Yet, in my opinion, the greatest promises contained in the Word of Wisdom are spiritual. It contains a promise of wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, and of the passing by of the destroying angel as the children of Israel were passed by. One of the most significant contributions of Joseph Smith is his work in translating and publishing the Book of Mormon, a sacred volume of scripture brought forth from ancient records. When it was first published in 1830, there was little scientific or historical evidence to substantiate the claims of Joseph Smith that the record came from metallic plates and told of ancient civilizations on the North and South American continents. Today, such outward evidences have been discovered and helped confirm that Joseph Smith was telling the truth about the Book of Mormon. But we also still look to the spiritual witnesses for our confirming belief in the book. Critics have long tried to explain away the Book of Mormon, but simply have not been successful. Theories concerning its origin have come and gone, and the still, book still lives on to testify that Jesus is the Christ. Most objective analytical scholars have come to recognize that it would have been impossible for an uneducated boy such as Joseph Smith, reared on the frontiers of America, to write the Book of Mormon. It contains so many exalted concepts, has such different writing styles, and is compiled in such a way that no one person could be its author. The honest inquirer can be led by faith to believe that Joseph Smith did translate the Book of Mormon from ancient plates of gold, which were written with engraved characters in the Reformed Egyptian language. No other explanations which have seriously challenged Joseph Smith's own account of the Book of Mormon 
have been able to survive as being factually correct. The evidences of a century and a half continue, and these increasingly affirm that Joseph Smith spoke the truth completely, honestly, and humbly. As I submit to you my testimony of Joseph Smith, I acknowledge his humanness along with his great spiritual powers. He did not claim to be divine or a perfect man. He claimed only to be a mortal man with human feelings and imperfections, trying honestly to fulfill the divine mission given to him. He so describes himself in recorded counsel given to some of the members of the Church who had just arrived in Nauvoo on October 29, 1842. Said the prophet, I told them that I was but a man, and they must not expect me to be perfect. If they expected perfection from me, I should expect it from them. But if they would bear with my infirmities and the infirmities of the brethren, I would likewise bear their infirmities. I am impressed with his complete candor, for in addition to admitting his own humanness, he also recorded the declarations from the Lord, which were given to him in the nature of loving reproof. As such reminders came to him, sometimes kindly and sometimes sternly, he dictated them as the mouthpiece of the Lord to those who transcribed the revelations. One such example is found in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 5, verse 21. And now I command you, my servant Joseph, to repent and walk more uprightly before me and to yield to the persuasions of men no more. While Joseph sought perfection, he did not claim perfection. If you were intending to fabricate a great falsehood or wanted to perpetrate a fraud or practice deceit, would he have been so truthful about his own humanness? His complete candor in admitting human frailties and in declaring the loving discipline of God offers powerful proof of his honesty and probative. His statements stand on more solid footing because they were declarations against human nature and admissions against self-interest. He knew that such candor would and did make him an object of hatred, ridicule, and social disapproval, but he spoke openly the unvarnished truth. He was prepared for such vicissitudes of life early in his ministry. He was told by the angel Moroni in 1823, only three years after his glorious vision of God the Father and Jesus Christ, that his name would be known for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and peoples, and that both good and evil would be spoken of him. However, the intensity of the evil and persecution surprised even Joseph and caused him to ask on one occasion, Why should the powers of darkness combine against me? Why the opposition and persecution that rose against me almost in my infancy? But he met the challenges and overcame the strife and was stronger because of them. There should be no exaggerated emphasis on the fallibility or mortal failings of Joseph Smith. They were only things that are a part of any human being. He and his work enjoyed the benediction of deity. On a special occasion the Lord said to him, Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Joseph, I am well pleased with your offering and acknowledgments which you have made. For unto this end I have raised you up, that I might show forth my wisdom through the weak things of the earth. I am deeply impressed by the kinds of people who became associates of Joseph Smith. 
His personality was a magnet to many people, attracting those of all ages and all classes. Many whom he inspired were extremely intelligent, dedicated, and capable men and women. The courage which they evidenced in behalf of the work of Joseph Smith, along with their sacrifices, suffering, and dedication, were almost beyond belief. At the outset, I mentioned Dr. Willard Richards, whose loyalty to Joseph is so typical. Before Joseph went to the Carthage jail, he said to Dr. Richards, If we go into the sale, will you, sale, will you go in with us? The doctor answered, Brother Joseph, you did not ask me to cross the river with you. You did not ask me to come to Carthage. You did not ask me to come to jail with you. And do you think that I would forsake you now? But I will tell you what I will do. If you are condemned to be hung for treason, I will be hung in your stead, and you shall go free. Joseph said, You cannot. The doctor replied, I will. Following the martyrdom of Joseph Smith, his successor as prophet was the practical Abel Brigham Young. Of Joseph Smith, Brigham Young said, When I first heard him preach, he brought heaven and earth together. And all of the priests of the day could not tell me anything correct about heaven, hell, God, angels, or devils. They were as blind as Egyptian darkness. When I saw Joseph Smith, he took heaven, figuratively speaking, and brought it down to earth. And he took the earth and brought it up and opened up in plainness and simplicity the things of God. And that is the beauty of his mission. The results of a century and a half of this church offer great authentication to the truthfulness of Joseph Smith's story. The work of this church moves forward in an astonishing way. The great body of Latter-day Saints remain faithful to their testimonies of Joseph Smith and his work. Since Joseph's day, millions have accepted by faith and have had confirmed by the Holy Spirit that Joseph's account of seeing the Father and the Son is true and that he restored to earth the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. As the years pass since Joseph's life and death, his history will no doubt be analyzed, picked at, criticized, challenged, and poured over. But the evidences of the truthfulness of his statements will continue to mount. The devotion and commitment of those who accept the restored gospel will continue to be severely tested. Their faith will be sorely tried, as has been the case with so many in the past. But like Joseph himself, millions will live and die faithful to the gospel he restored. As time moves on, the stature of Joseph Smith will loom ever larger. He will stand higher and higher in the esteem of mankind. Ever so many will come to a profound conviction, as I have, that there is a divine source to the message he taught and an eternal purpose to the work which he restored on earth. There comes down through my family a legacy of testimony concerning the truthfulness of Joseph Smith's work. I learned of this bequest as a small boy at my mother's knee. My great-grandfather, Edward Partridge, was intimately associated with the Prophet Joseph for several years prior to his losing his life in consequence of the persecution. He was baptized by Joseph. In a revelation received by the prophet, he was called as the first bishop of the restored church. Grandfather was so tortured, humiliated, and suffered so much in his calling from lawless mobs and was still so steadfast and faithful that he could not possibly 
have doubted the genuineness of the revelation that appointed him. Like others who were close to the prophet, he knew Joseph's heart and soul. Grandfather could not have been deceived. I believe his life and death both prove that he did not lie. His devotion, suffering, and sacrifice eloquently testifies that he had implicit faith in Joseph as an inspired servant of God. In addition to this heritage, I have my own inner witness, which confirms to my soul that the Prophet Joseph Smith, as the instrument of God, revealed the greatest body of truth that has come to mankind since the Savior himself walked upon the earth. What has been taught at this pulpit for the last two days is an expanding extension of the inheritance of truth left to all of us by the Prophet Joseph Smith. It was given to save and exalt mankind as directed by the Lord Jesus Christ. I so testify with profound gratitude in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. My theme today is mercy. The poet wrote that mercy is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes, and added that earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. I'm sure that everyone within sound of my voice today is in favor of mercy. But mercy merely as a principle, impersonal mercy, is no more useful or virtuous than impersonal faith or impersonal repentance or impersonal love. As a new mission president years ago, I visited by somewhat imperious invitation the home of a good and strongly opinionated man who wanted to discuss with me an error of judgment made by a young missionary. The harmless action involved was the result of a misunderstanding for which the young man had sincerely apologized. I was fully satisfied with the resolvement. My friend was not. He insisted on some form of punishment, public punishment, that assured humiliation. The young man must pay, and I must see to it. We reasoned together. His position was that justice demands payment and that mercy cannot rob justice. I agree, and reminded him that the words he had quoted came from a Book of Mormon incident wherein a choice servant of God who early in his life had desperately needed mercy had received it and was now teaching an unrepentant son who was seeking to justify his own serious sin. Alma the father taught Corianton the meaning and consequences of the atonement, in the course of which, acknowledging the place of justice, he three times testified of God's plan of mercy brought about through Christ's holy gift. Mercy claimeth the penitent, he said. Mercy claimeth all which is her own, which repentance mercy claimeth. Otherwise, justice claimeth the creature. Corianton listened, repented, and was forgiven and subsequently returned to missionary service to bring souls unto repentance that the great plan of mercy may have faith upon, may have claim upon them. And the sin of, of Corianton was major. The incident involving the missionary was 
innocent and minor. I thought our discussion would resolve the issue. It did not. My host leaned across the table and said to me with intensity, I want justice. Quietly, I replied, I want mercy. Three times, with growing force, he repeated his message, I want justice. Each time, I responded to his crescendo with diminuendo, saying more quietly, I want mercy. We parted with the agreement that it was my responsibility to handle the matter, to give justice its due, and to let mercy claim her own. He's gone now to his eternal reward. I remember him with respect and affection. I came to know him well and love him and to be aware that he, like all the rest of us, needed the promised mercy of Christ to the penitent. Many times I've mused on that moment. I want justice. I want mercy. Then recently, half a world away, I sat with another good man. He had brought light and warmth and good humor into the room with him, and I was listening with deep interest as he told his before and after story. The before involved his life as a nominal but non-practicing Christian employed in a stressful occupation with rough associates and with a tendency to follow the crowd in all their bad habits. He was not attentive to his wife and children, was worried about his family, suffered from an unhappy conscience, and had developed a serious physical ailment. Then two young men came to his door. They represented the Lord, they said, with a message of eternal truth for him and his family. The gospel of Jesus Christ is restored to the earth. The church of Jesus Christ reestablished. Every individual and every family are important to God. And through his plan can find purpose and meaning. Families are meant to be together forever. And there is a way to know for oneself the truth of these things, they said, for the Holy Spirit would confirm the knowledge for those who sincerely seek. He listened and believed. Immediately, he put aside bad habits. His wife and children responded also. Their lives changed. They studied and prayed and worshiped, joined the church, and lived in the light of the Spirit. His work improved, and soon new opportunities and trust and renewed reputation for dependability resulted. At the conclusion of his story came a ringing declaration of faith, without self-consciousness, without bluster, without guile. I am like the Lord in one thing, he said. My specialty is mercy. My specialty is mercy. One cannot live long with the scriptures without recognizing that God our Father and his Holy Son have specialties also. The specialty of the Father is mercy. To his people in Isaiah's time, he gave stern counsel and warning. They were, he said, a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceit. He spoke of their perverseness, their iniquity, their rejection of him, and their reliance upon temporal power. Notwithstanding all this, the holy record then announces, And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. Therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. 
He waits to be gracious. He loves to be merciful. Repeatedly it is written that his mercy endureth forever. He is rich in mercy. His mercy is everlasting. And crowning all of this is the declaration that God our Father delighteth in mercy. The specialty of the Father is mercy. The specialty of the Savior is mercy. The scriptures teach that he took upon himself the form of man and was touched with a feeling of our infirmities. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a more merciful and faithful high priest. There is one who understands, who sympathizes. He was misunderstood, rejected, knew supreme loneliness, was poor and had not a place to lay his head, suffered anguish and conflict of mind. He understands. He can give pardon and bring peace. The specialty of the Savior is mercy. And he requires that we be specialists in mercy. Be ye therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. Through Micah we are taught man's whole duty, which is to walk humbly with God, do justly among our fellow man, and love mercy. Our individual need for mercy and its conditions he explained in a parable of two men who went up to the temple to pray. One proudly announced his own perfections and righteousness. The other would not so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Of this honest, unpretentious man, the Lord declared that he went down to his house justified rather than the other. The meaning of mercy he taught in a parable of a man beaten and left at the roadside and concluded the sweet story of the Samaritan by referring to two men who passed by without helping and to one who stopped to assist him. Which of these three, the Lord asked, was neighbor to the man? And he answered, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus, Go and do thou likewise. Thus the mercy of God must be mirrored in the mercy of man, and the field is as broad as the needs of the whole human family. The psalmist cried, have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. All of us are in trouble. There is no just man on the earth who doeth good and sinneth not. In the most personal of his, personal of his parables, the Savior identified himself fully with the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the homeless, sick, and in prison. I was an hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. So many are burdened with earthly care, the stain of sin, poverty, pain, disability, loneliness, bereavement, rejection. The promise of Christ's mercy is sure and certain to those who find him and trust him. He who still the winds and waves can bring peace to the sinner and to the suffering saint. And we, as his agents, are not alone to declare his word, but to represent him in doing unto the least of his brethren that which he himself would do were he now here. In a refugee camp in Asia, we met a young former school teacher who with her mother had escaped their country after having watched the brutal murder of others in their family. She had been viciously violated to the point where she vowed never to speak again in this depraved world. 
It was her way to protest against the wickedness imposed upon her and countless others. For more than five years, she spoke not a word. Then one day she came into the influence of some of our church representatives who were performing daily miracles of love in several refugee camps. They had no medical magic, these selfless young ladies representing us there, no professional competence to deal with a tortured mind and spirit. They prayed for her, took her hand, and spoke words of love to her, and she answered. For the first time in five years, she spoke, and she's been speaking since. The spirit of him who said, peace be still, reached out through faithful instruments and touched the storm center of a troubled soul and stilled the winds and waves of torment and brought faith and hope again. For me and mine and for you, I pray to be worthy to carry the same banner as our beloved brother who found the way to mercy and who exemplifies in his life what I heard him humbly declare, my specialty is mercy. Let us, therefore, come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. What a special delight it is, <clears throat> brothers and sisters, to stand in your presence once more to feel of your great spirit. I'm just glad we're friends. You know, conference is a great time for spiritual uplift and for association and for wise counsel. With all the counsel I've been hearing, I couldn't help but reminisce a little bit about the young athlete who tempted most all sports but uh, had never tried skydiving. And so he took several theoretical courses in how to jump. When the day came for the solo flight, he became a little fearful. So he approached his instructor and he says, I'm not sure I want to go through with this. The instructor said, don't worry. We'll protect you by putting two added chutes on you. They took off, arrived at about the 3,000-foot level. With some fear and trepidation, he was pushed out. <laughs> on the way down, at about 2,000 feet, he remembered that's when you pulled the first ripcord. He did so, and the chute didn't open. He pulled the second, and it didn't open. He pulled the third, and it didn't open. To his amazement, about that time, he met in the air, coming up from the ground, another man. They passed on the way. <laughs> the young parachute shouted to his new friend. Pardon me, said, do you know anything about parachutes? <laughs> no, his friend hollered back. What do you know about Coleman lanterns? <laughs> I suppose it seems all of us are in need of good counsel. Quite often, parents and many young people ask the question, how do you teach the gospel so that it's meaningful and applicable? Do you know, my brothers and sisters, that learning any concept or principle or changing any behavioral pattern requires five important steps? First, you have to expose a person. Second is the law of repetition. Third is to give understanding. 
the why. People of all ages want to know the whys of the gospel, not just the rules. This is the most important aspect of teaching because the fourth step, that of conviction and the fifth application, cannot occur until we understand. Too often our answers to young people's inquiries are, well, because the scriptures say so, or that's what the leaders tell us. Young people want to know why the scriptures say so, and why are the leaders so concerned? Let me just share a little personal experience that happened some years ago at the university. I'd been in a very special meeting with our young people. We'd been talking about temple marriage. And as we departed this session, I was in a group of several young ladies, one of whom I knew quite well, along with her family. I had become aware that she had been dating a boy out of the faith, and I just cautiously suggested to her that you tend to marry those that you date. And I said, I'm kind of planning on the day when I can perform that sealing in the temple. She looked at me and she said, well, I may not get married in the temple. And I said, why not? And she looked at me, as only young people can, and said, why should I? All right, mom and dad, teacher, what do you tell them? Like most teachers, I paused for composure. I gave the usual response. I said, well, why shouldn't you? <laughs> uh, she looked at me and she said, do you really want to know? I said, please. She said, how well do you know my father? I said, reasonably well. She said, my dad puts on a pretty good front. Oh, he's a fine man, but he's a little hypocritical. She said, you ought to see the way he treats my mom and us at home. And you know, my mom and dad were married in the temple. And, and I don't want a marriage like that. She said, how well do you know brother and sister so-and-so? Uh, I said, I'm acquainted. She said, you know, I babysit for them. They too were married in the temple. And I wouldn't care for a marriage like that. She said, how well do you know Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so? This is a wonderful member of our community, not of our faith. Ten children. She said, I babysit that family too. And, and I like a marriage like theirs. Now what do you say, Mom and Dad? The scriptures say so. Well, that's what the leaders teach. Young people are after whys and wherefores. I was still a little puzzled. Standing nearby was another young student. I turned to her and I said, how do you answer that? And she was alert. She turned to her friend and she said, Jan, you're not fair. Jan said, why not? She said, because you're judging the whole church by two or three examples that don't represent necessarily what we believe and teach or how we do it. She said, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you had maybe little personal crises, a frustrating date, a test, social situation that worried you a little bit, where your dad kind of sensed it, tiptoed into your bedroom and sat on the edge of the bed and stroked your head and, and said, wouldn't you like a blessing tonight? And Jan looked at her and said, oh, my dad doesn't do that. The little girl said, my dad does. And then together, 
they talked about another situation involving a teaching moment in the home, a prayerful moment in the home, and she listed some eight or nine without even thinking. And I could see a little change in Jan's heart. I had the thrill some months later of performing that marriage in a temple. I'd like to think that that night a change occurred. Most wrong choices before or after marriage are not made out of rebellion or intentional error, but out of misinformation, miscommunication, and lack of understanding. In most cases, if couples truly truly understood the what's and the why's and how's of eternal marriage, no one would have to talk them into the right choices. Indeed, no one would be able to talk them out of them. Let me ask you young people a question. Have you ever wondered why God would restrict us from some things, advise us strongly against them, warn us, even command us? Do you think his commandments are just arbitrary whims, artificial tests of some kind, generalities that are important for some people but not for others? I don't think so. His commandments are loving counsel from a wise father. Our understanding and concept of God as a loving, personal Heavenly Father allows us no other definition. He gives us commandments for one reason only, because he loves us and wants us to be happy. Chastity is a perfect example. God simply knows that virtue is its own reward, that the saving of oneself or one eternal partner makes that commitment more beautiful, more joyful. It is the simple question of whether you want a penny now or a diamond later. Any momentary pleasure that might result from a premarital relationship cannot be compared with the vastly greater joy of oneness in marriage. And the indulgence in the former can destroy the potential for the latter. Chastity is like money in the bank. As you save yourself, you are saving the joy of belonging to one and only one. You are saying and saving the joy of being able to say, I'm all yours, and I've never been anyone else's. Some will ask, what if we already know who is the one and, and that the commitment and the idea? Well, we need to understand that we're waiting not just for the commitment, but for the ceremony. The answer is it's not just a ceremony. It's a covenant both with God and with your partner, and waiting shows the deepest love and respect for both. Some will say, but we love each other too much to wait. The answer is that there's no such thing as too much love, and that it's too much selfishness, not love, that debates divine counsel and violates virtue. Any love that is to become eternal must include respect, faith, trust, admiration, honor, and have spiritual and mental aspects, as well as physical and emotional. No relationship, either temporal or eternal, can exist without these attributes. Every soap opera is filled with acrid illustrations of of misery because these qualities are absent. If in your case the physical tends to dominate, all the more reason to bridle it and find the other dimensions. Bridal is the word that wise Father Alma used in counseling his son Shiblin, and the promise he attached is the key to understanding. Quote, Bridle your passions that ye may be filled with love. Bridling increases strength, increases power, increases love. 
There are absolutely two ways you can control a horse. We learned a little bit about horses last night. One is to kill it. The other is to bridle it. Alma never said, kill your passions. The implication is not that passions are evil, that we shouldn't have them. On the contrary, we bridle something we love, something whose power we respect. A horse is stronger than the man, so the man bridles it, thus controlling its power and using that power for good. Passions are stronger than we are, so we bridle them, thus controlling their power and using that power to strengthen a marriage and forge it into eternity. One has to know how to bridle a horse or a passion. Remember, a physical relationship, relationship is simply too beautiful to squander, too wonderful to waste. It is the sterling silver too precious to tarnish before the beauty of the banquet. Let us remember that understanding the why in learning is what develops proper attitude or changes behavior. God grant us the wisdom to teach wisely and with understanding. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I feel very humble this afternoon and privileged to be in your presence, brothers and sisters. I hope and pray that the Spirit of the Lord will be with me so that I might be able to communicate with you. I know with all my heart and my soul that our Heavenly Father lives. He truly lives. I know our Heavenly Father is there, and He's ready to answer for our sincere prayers. He has spoken to His children in this past. He has spoken to our day, to our people in this last dispensation. He introduced our Father, introduced to His Son, Jesus Christ, to His people who live in the American continent. Book of Mormon testifies, they heard the voice as it were came out of heaven, and they kissed, <clears throat> cast their eyes round about, for they understood not the voice which they heard. And it was not hushed voice, neither was it a loud voice, nevertheless, and notwithstanding, in the being small voice, it appears them that they hear to center insomuch that they were no part of their frame, that it did not cause to quake. Yea, it did pierce them to the every soul, and it caused their hearts to burn. And again the third time they did hear the voice, and did open their ears to hear it, and their eyes were towards the sound thereof. And they did look steadfastly towards the heaven, from hence he sound, the sound came, and behold, the third time they did understood which the voice has came, which they heard, and it, and it said unto them, Behold, my beloved son, in whom I well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name, hear ye him. I know the same Father spoken to the Jewish people 
in the Eastern Hemisphere. When our Lord Jesus Christ was baptized, the Bible testifies, and lo, the heavens were open unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and lightning upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I well please. I know that early one morning, in early spring 1820, in the state of New York, the Father and the Son appeared to the boy Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith testified, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually till it fell upon me. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all the description. Standing above me in the air, one of them spake unto me, calling my name and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son. Hear him. I know Joseph Smith saw God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. And I know that Joseph was a true living prophet of God, like Joseph Smith of our day, and like the ancient disciples and apostles of the Western and Eastern hemispheres. I know that our Heavenly Father's own testimony is true. The Jesus of Nazareth is his beloved Son, in whom he is well pleased. Hear ye him. I know that Jesus of Nazareth was born in the land of Judea, that he walked by the Sea of Galilee and the fields of plains of Palestine. It is his own testimony that he should, we should hear. The one he bore to Martha, the sister of his friends, Nazareth. Yesterday, Elder Monson referred this scripture I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though were dead, yet shall he live. And whatsoever believe, live and believeth in me shall never die. Believeth thou this? Brothers and sisters, I believe this with all my heart and with all my soul. I know that this same Jesus conferred upon the Joseph Smith all the power and authority necessary to reestablish the kingdom of God upon this earth once again, so that every soul might have a chance to hear his beloved Son. I know our Heavenly Father loves us so much that he has provided us through his beloved Son a way to follow in our mortal life through the restoration of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has provided us the way to find eternal happiness, true happiness. Brothers and sisters, many of our father's children in Japan and Korea are also believing our Heavenly Father's testimony and listening to his beloved Son. 
Shortly before I coming to this conference, I received a beautiful letter from a woman who had lost her children, uh, who had lost uh, her husband 13 years ago. And I want to read it to you. She said, I, I was left alone to raise my two sons as I was attending the baptismal service of my eldest son, who is attending senior high school. I could not help but feel the beautiful atmosphere that surrounding me. I was so impressed by the sweet spirit of the saints, how observant I humble I felt. I observed my son, dressed in white, going down into the water. The stake president's wife, who was whispering to me, told me that his sins could be washed away. I was so overwhelmed by the beauties of this moment that I felt my tears well up and my heart cried for joy. At that moment, I wanted to know about myself. What about me? What about me? It is, it is possible that, that I, too, could experience a washing away of my sins. If my sins could be washed away and made clean once more, I, too, I, too, wanted to be baptized. After a few days of studying, Praying with the missionaries, brothers and sisters, she came also to the Savior and was baptized shortly after. Her youngest son also entered into the waters of baptism. Now Sister Masako Anan and her two boys are preparing to go to the Tokyo Temple to be sealed as a family with, the, with their deceased father, for the time and all eternity. Oh, how glorious is the power of the gospel which can change the hearts of people from sorrow and despair to happiness and joy. Oh, how glorious it is to know that power of conferred upon the Joseph Smith can change the hearts of people. I know that gospel has been restored and that true church of God has been reestablished here upon this earth. I humbly extend my invitation to all friends everywhere. I say humbly today, come, come partake of this living water. Believe the testimony of the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. I know for those who wish to hear the Father's testimony, beloved Son, the Book of Mormon, like the Bible, has a similar voice. It has the word of God, has the power to change this man's soul. May I just give you an example of Kareem brother, who had the Savior's voice recently. Brother Che had left his wife, two children, and his mother 
for two, for nine months. One day, our missionary were tracking the city of Gwangju, Korea. They found this his family. The family began to study with the missionaries and were baptized shortly. The missionaries started the family home evening program with this family. One day, the seven-year-old daughter purchased the Book of Mormon from a missionary and sent it with her simple and yet beautiful testimony to her daddy. Two missionaries took that book to her father and bore their strong, firm testimony of the truthness of the gospel and importance of the family unity. Her father wondered why these people were so concerned and kind to him and his family. The evening came. He began to read and heard and similar voice of the Lord. And he was so, he was so inspired and found that it was true. And also he found the testimony of written by his daughter. It says, I want to share with you, brothers and sisters. She said, Aboji, 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 which interpreted Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. I want to have a family and home evening with you, Daddy. Please come back. We love you. I love you. I need you. I want, to read, I want you to read this book. Heavenly Father loved you. Brother Che was so inspired and magnified by reading the Book of Mormon and touched by it, and touched by her daughter's testimony. Brothers and sisters, therefore this family was united. And Brother Che is now Bishop of Kwanju's Third Ward. He sits in this hall today. A living example. One who, were, who heard the Savior's voice from the Book of Mormon. Oh, how we need the missionary of the Lord to carry the Father's testimony and his beloved Son to every people and kindred tongues people. There must be many Bishop Chase, and there must be many Sister Annans in your own neighborhood. I know Spencer W. Kimball is a prophet of the Lord. He is a living prophet. He instructs us that we should lengthen our stride, quicken our pace, by sense of urgency, and do it now. President Kimball, you are a living prophet of the Lord. You are a man of scorn and a covereth with the scars like a Job of old. Yet you are ready to move forward to climb another mountains. We love you. We need you. Brothers and sisters, why don't we pay more humble attention to his servant of the Lord so that we can lengthen our own stride to share the beautiful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ 
with another Bishop Chade and another Sister Annan, I humbly pray in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>